It's good to see you all here. Um, I guess we can pray. Dear Lord, we're thankful for your word. We'd ask that you'd watch over us as we read it and uh, seek to follow your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6. I, was last week? Who read last week? Was it John 6? I think so. Well, I remember somebody in the last two weeks read John 6. Um, and as I was getting up after the reading, and it may have been Colleen, I just say to yourself, golly, what a great passage of Scripture. I mean, it's one of those moments where Jesus is being really, really, really unclear and really clear at the same time. And, but you, you know, looking in it as a Christian, that it's, it's so much more than what the people listening to him are thinking. I remember I had that feeling last week, and then I got up this morning and I went to the library with my coffee, and, and I just opened my Bible and opened to John 6. So not magic, I'm not claiming magic, but that's why you're getting John 6. And Jesus. That's why you're. Now, in John 6, you have the feeding of the uh, 5,000, early part of John 6. And I recommend, if you have a chance, to read through the Gospel of St. John. Half of the book is about his ministry, half about, is about the Passion. And John approaches everything very differently than the other Gospel writers. And it's almost like he's picking the most intensely emotional moments that he can bring up. By the time, you know, every so often, and the Jews sought to kill him. You know, it's that sort of response throughout the first part of John. Well, after he has fed the 5,000, you can imagine what... Well, I can imagine next Sunday, if you come to the Baron of Beef dinner, laying back, you know, on pillows, you've been well fed. And she said, so, I really, uh, honey, I really think this is the church for us. Because chapter 6, verse 14, right at the top, when the people saw the sign which he had done, they said, this indeed is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and make him, take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And that is something, that's something that is a, uh, inevitable when you deal with a religious circumstance that provided something that everybody wants in other areas of their life. If you were given, every time you came to church here, 10 bucks, I stood at the door handing out $10 bills. You understand $10. You might understand what I say in my sermons, but you understand $10. And you could say, well, what, four, that's 40 bucks a month. It's like an extra job going to church. Some people like the social encounter that they get at church. Whatever the case, Jesus provided something that they were impressed by. So he had to go hide himself. Now a few verses later, he sends off the disciples in the boat, then he walks on the water, catches up with them, so he skipped over that. Down to verse 25, the people had gotten up and, and, and realized, hey, that guy with all the food is gone. The guy with the food, who could magically make food, is gone. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where did you when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. You know, Jesus doesn't even have the good grace, you know, politeness-wise, 
to believe good things of these people? Why can't he just allow that they followed him because he was a, a wonder worker? Maybe because he's more honest about people than we are. He says, you seek me. Now, what I want you to think about in this passage is that the seeking person, the person who is seeking Christian things, isn't necessarily the person they ought to be. There is a problem that occurs in that category of the seeker. He says, you seek me because you got your fill of loaves. Now, all too often, Christian churches nowadays, because they want to prove that they're, well, they want to get people to come, or they want to prove to the downtrodden that the downtrodden can admire them, buy the downtrodden's interest with loaves of bread. It's nice enough to do. Jesus made them loaves of bread, but he didn't lie to himself about who they were. They were not, they were not seeking him for anything other than the utopian gains that they might get in their life. Because you ate your fill of loaves. He says, verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him has God the Father set his seal. So he introduces a dichotomy to their ears. He says, you just caught up with me at Capernaum. I fed you on the other side of the sea. You chased after me in boats. You caught up with me. I, don't th I think you're up to no good. Why don't I recommend that you change what you're up to instead of no good, up to good. Do not labor for. He's equating, or making synonymous, the seeking him with labor. What, because what's labor? Labor is you're expending time, energy, effort to bring answer to a problem. That's what, you know, I'm looking out my window in my kitchen with my cup of coffee in the morning at what has the winter wrought on the yard. And you say to yourself, well, what do I want to change this year? And if I want to change this this year, I'm going to have to dig a trench over there. I'm going to have to roll up this over here. I'm going to put in a sprinkler system there. I'm marking out what effort, energy, time, money I'm going to have to put in to answer the problem I see. And the Lord has said that their seeking of him is labor. The problem is not that they did not show an interest in Jesus Christ. They showed a huge interest in Jesus Christ. Take him by force to make him king, would I call that a huge interest? But he says, no, 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 no. This can be all a mistake. You could be seeking me and finding me, and it really matters what problem you're answering. If the church is the answer to your social problem, if the church is your answer to raising your kids morally problem, if the church is your answer to the helping the needy problem, oh, all those are good. Good to have your kids raised in the Lord. Good to have fellowship with the saints. Good to help the poor. But if it's your problem, when you see Christ, you start to want him to be and he may even answer those things. You mistake where your labor should have been. What you're seeking should have been on the basis of. Don't labor for the food that perishes. You say, well, Evan, why are you feeding the church next Sunday? Well, we had, we had the meat. The Lord fed the 5,000. There's no question about that. It's an amazing miracle. But... What are you about? What is the church answering for you wherever you go? However you function. You seek me for that. You should be seeking me for this. And that's, that's a... You know, say, can't we just be happy that people are, are coming to church and after the Lord and, 
and uh, really don't want to ask too many questions. It would drive them away. Jesus is not of that camp. He does not believe in having people hang around who got it wrong. He's happy to have them show up. And then he says, you showed up for this reason. You might want to change that. Well, we don't want to change it. Well, then I'm going to say something that makes you so upset that you either leave or you want to kill me. Jesus wasn't one. This is so much so that you do not seek the bread that perishes. And so much so you seek the food that leads to eternal life. That he's willing to drive you away if you make the mistake in what your problem brings you to church. What problem brings you to church? Brings you to seek God. And then they said to him, verse 28, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, if you get a chance, walk through this passage by yourself and watch the Lord build the problem for them. He builds the problem in such a way that you're, when Colleen read it last week, you're sitting there meditating on it as a Christian who has believed in Jesus Christ unto salvation. And you know he's the bread of life for the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And you're just feeling all warm, a little choked up, because it's, it's so wonderful that Jesus is that way. You've got a different crew here. And I hear you say, well, oh, what kind of church do you think you're talking to? Why? Well, I, you know, I think the best of you, of course. But I've been in situations, and I know of Christian churches that objected to people talking about being born again. Objected to people talking about being born again. Because none of that, and Martin Luther didn't talk about any of that nonsense. It was a Lutheran church. These are people that the Lord has said, you got your fill of loaves, that's why you're here. And so he says, do something else. And they say, okay, sure. Because in the back of their mind are still the loaves. What do you want us to act like we're into? How lustily do we have to sing these songs? Are we, do we need to, what are, what, what are the works of God? Obviously you want us to be laboring um, for eternal things. We ought to be, and he says, you better believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Because this shows how very slightly they had drifted from their real interest. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You don't seem to understand, Jesus, that part of the work of the church is feeding the poor. Well, the work of the church is saving the rotten poor people's souls from eternal damnation. If they die poor, no problem, folks. You die rich, no problem. Your soul your state of sin before the living God. You fix all these people's lives. Do you realize, and again, I've got no trouble with you attempting to help them out. Jesus helped them out. But he didn't mistake his helping them out for the real work of the church, for the real work of Jesus Christ. He was going, no, I am the bread of life. You... You seek me because you want more loaves. You should have sought me because you wanted to believe me. And that's what he says. Believe in him whom he has sent. Oh, they want to... Lewis, nice attempt to get away, but... Dragged into the outer darkness. Where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth... So they drag it back. Oh yeah, sure. Fine, Jesus. We'll do the work of God. And, uh, but you're going to need to convince us. Look, they were about to try to make him king. He, they were convinced. They got 5,000 people fed out of a lunchbox. But they want that to kind of happen again. To make it always be happening. Sunday after Sunday. Uh, another great meal by Jesus Christ. 
Make sure that Jesus feels he's always on the hook for feeding us this food because he wants us to believe in him, doesn't he? The problem that they wanted resolved, Jesus had to pony up. The problem, you might say, wasn't big enough. They could put the onus on Jesus to prove that he was just what they needed by making more food. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, much like the woman at the well a few chapters earlier, Lord, give us this bread always. She said, Lord, give, us, give me this water that I might not come hither to draw. They're still thinking as people with loaves on their minds. But he's making, you notice he's getting stranger and stranger. First, the work of God. You want to go after the things of God. What's the work? Well, prove that you're the person we're supposed to believe. I'm offering you bread from heaven. No, it's not the man. It's not like what you're expecting from Moses. It gives life to this world. And then he says, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. There's kind of a pattern in this passage about seeking and coming. You know, in other words, they sought him, and, coming in, and, and in seeking him, they, they, uh, they said, Though these are the people that came to Christ. And the idea of coming to him, you seek me, not because you saw signs. This is the nature of religious people. We're not dealing with the irreligious, the people who don't want anything from that guy over there. These are the people that just really got on board with whatever it was the Christian church was offering. He is the bread of life. If you come, and if you believe, you will never hunger or thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. They got the halfway point. Because a lot of people come to the true religion answering the wrong problem. You want to be sure that in your life you're answering the problem you have that is the problem you have before God. God sent the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, to the earth for a reason. That reason had better be why you're standing around in Christian circles. Not because you want to be part of an active philanthropic effort to help the, you know, stop the sex trade in Moscow. Whatever social action, hey, no, knock yourself out, but that's not what we're about as Christians. That's not why we stand in the presence of God. That's not why we're in the same family together. We're answering the problem God answered in Christ. The bread he gave, and what we believe in, is what answers the problem. Because he says, I have more concern about you. you. You came to me, but you don't believe in me. There's a lot of these other problems that are real problems. Good answers can be given to them, but they're not the problem that's on our plate in Christ, in the church. Now, he then says something interesting. You've seen me, you don't believe. This not hungering and not thirsting is for those who have sought me and believed. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And him who comes to me I will not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Okay, he's, 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 he's making the task that he is serving bigger and more confusing. 
that the will of the Father is why he's here. He wouldn't lose anything of what he seized on. It will be raised up in the, into eternal life, raised up on the last day. For this is the will, verse 40, the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Ah, that's the problem that is answered by my seeking of Jesus Christ. I get eternal life. At least that's the beginning point. That's the will of the Father. I have to seek, I have to seek with this problem in my mind, so that when I find Jesus Christ, he is the bread that answers that problem. Too many people think the church is there to answer other problems than this. They kind of even make fun of people who believe in eternal life. Heaven, it's so medieval, let alone hell. But this is what the point is, and if I miss the point, I miss the gain that Christ is. The Jews then murmured at him because he said, now these guys have been sitting on the mountainside, he fed them on lunch. They said, we've got to find this guy, track this guy down and ask him questions to try to prompt him giving us more lunch. Get this buffet opened. And he's making it sound like we're not, not going to be offering the buffet today. We don't kind of like that. Because when you've been interested in the buffet, and you've been carrying on a theological discussion somewhat, in which the buffet feature, features rather largely, that this sign would really be helpful if you wanted us to believe in him. And he keeps going back to this, if you sought me and you believed in me, I will give you eternal life bit. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Because that was sort of outside the limits of what you're willing to believe religiously. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're going to they're gonna push back a little bit. Not only have they said, well, hey, give us a sign. More loaves, we'd suggest that. He says, no, I'm going to give you me. I'm the bread. I'm from heaven. Yeah, you live, you're from over there. We saw you grow up in the subdivision outside of Nazareth. You played soccer league with my kids. I know you. You didn't come from nowhere. Jesus answered them, do not murmur among yourselves. And this is kind of a new rule. Kind of like, oh, let me, let me change this up. Let me add another rule to the situation. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now, those of you who are Reformed, knock yourselves out. But we're not talking about that this morning. And you're saying to yourself, well, as I imagine you're not. Don't get uppity. Don't murmur among yourselves. He said, quoting Jesus. No one can come to me unless the Father... He said, yeah, I, I, I see the problem here. I see the problem. You guys have sought me, and you have not believed in me. Oh, we would if you gave us some more food. Well, I'm the, I'm the food. Yeah, I know you're from Nazareth. Oh, I get it, says Jesus, as they murmur among themselves, this is not working out well for us. I get it. This is coming down from the Father, and, and no one can come to me unless they're drawn by the Father. I can understand why you're kind of stuck, being shallow and stupid. As it is written in the Prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Because he says, they shall be raised up on the last day. Remember, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
no one comes to was it, was it no one comes uh, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws draws him. It's sort of like a well then why are you we don't understand that either. Well, you, you know, you, you say with 2,000 years later, Christians are still arguing over the degree of determinism and the degree of freedom of the will, and we're still arguing about it. We still have a problem with this. I don't think this is actually one of those passages, but as it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Then it says something synonymous with what he just said. Everyone who has heard and learn from the Father comes to me. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Then he described what the drawing is. Who have heard and learned from the Father. The people in the crowd, they're standing there having followed Jesus up onto the mountain, gotten lunch, and a lot of the good people got lunch, and a lot of bad people got lunch. And so people kept following Jesus, and some because they heard him say things of eternal life, and some because they got lunch. Those who have heard and learned from the Father come to Christ. Who you are, what, did you set out on this journey looking for what Jesus offered? When St. Paul in Romans 7 says, uh, I, everything I want to do I can't do, Everything I don't want to do, I do. I'm just awful. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Sort of wonder why Jesus had such an instant conversion with St. Paul. You know, meet him on the road and all you had to say was, I'm true. He wanted it badly. When you have sought, you might have th thought you were seeking friendships. You came to church and you found out that really it was your sins while you're here. It's things that are keeping you from life eternal. You found that you had heard and learned from the Father and because you had heard and learned of God and that produced your seeking. When you saw the Christ, you believed in the Christ. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except him who has is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Oh, because this is getting weirder and weirder. All we wanted was a sandwich, and he is offering us cannibalism. And it doesn't get any better. I am the bread come down from heaven. Come on, let's be real. We, just used, we saw you do a magic trick in which I got to eat the fruits of the magic trick. Great, do that again. That'll be good. We'll call that the church. He says, no, no, I'm the bread. Oh, yeah, well, okay. How's that work? Well, my flesh is the bread. Now, for those of you with a Catholic background, this is going to sound vaguely familiar. Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How could he come down from heaven? I knew him as a kid. We're supposed to eat his body? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, and it's like, oh, is that the, is that the sore spot? <coughs> <laughs> yeah, it hurts. Don't it hurt? <coughs> truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, oh, let's make it a little gruesome and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So there. Want to follow me now? 
because there's going to be a big feast at the end in which I will be chopped up and you will have glasses of my blood and uh, whatever form of the meat you wanted in. It could be you know, a burger or a steak. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Ah! Understand transubstantiation now? Because they believe, you go up to the St. Mary's, they'll tell you that is the body of God in the reliquary. The host has been blessed by the priest. Once it has been changed, it really is, in no uncertain terms, the body. Not a symbol of the body, not a spiritual thing of the body, the body. That the wine is his blood, and because they want to follow this passage exquisitely, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you do not have eternal life. Well, we don't want to act like a bunch of secular materialists where we go, oh, that's just so old-timey stuff. It's what the Lord said, right? For my flesh is food indeed. Notice what he says, I will raise him up the last day in verse 23. He eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What was this synonymous with? That was seeking him and believing in him. Verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should, in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And if you eat his flesh and drink his blood... You have eternal life and he will raise him up on the last day. It's synonymous. So he's hanging this thing, this, this barrier they have of believing in Christ. He is making that barrier of believing in him confusing and more distant. So that they could not do it easily. For my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What's so hard about that, right? I told this story before, but Sheldon von Aachen, who wrote Severe Mercy, a little loopy, um, his wife died. That's the story of the Severe Mercy. He had her cremated and kept her in an urn on his mantelpiece. Lived in Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, my little brother drove me by his place at one point. And uh, in the evening, he would take a spoon of her ashes and put it in his wine and stir it up. And so he could say he was having a little wine with his wife. Okay, like I said, a loopy writer, southern, you know, not right in the hade. Bless his heart. Um, but you can understand this if you eat Jesus Christ. He abides and he abides you, you and him. The molecules of Jesus get to permeate the molecules of heaven or whomever, if you were really eating him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He said this, if you want to say it, in church. He said this in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He stayed. The church saying, yeah, you got to, we're a new cult. We're a new sect here of Judaism in which cannibalism features largely. In which we eat parts of the master. Drink his blood. Because he says he's the bread of heaven. And our, it, once you say, if you stop right there, stop right there, you say, yeah, but that's what it teaches. Somehow I've got to believe that. Somehow when you take the Eucharist or, or because that's what it did in Matthew 26, I think it's Matthew 26. Did I write that down? Uh, Matthew 26. Somewhere. This is, is this in order? Um, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when his, he had given thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So you know that the Eucharist is the fulfillment of this, right? And so the Catholics go, okay. So if he says you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood, and he says that his flesh and blood are the, are the um, host, then consequently you better believe that it actually turns into his blood and body. Let's not be dumb. But the reaction is correct. The reaction is, God, this is gross. Have you ever thought about how bloody Christianity is? I mean, it's really... The things that Jesus and the prophets make to describe God and his relationship to you are not decent. All you have to do is stop yourself. You know, our religion is based on human sacrifice. It is. It is based on human sacrifice. The difference between you and, say, the followers of the Sidonian Baal, who would sacrifice countless thousands of babies, or the Aztecs, who would sacrifice tens of thousands of adult captives, is we had one sacrifice and it saved you. It was sufficient. It was the flawless sacrifice. But you believe in human sacrifice. And you believe, you believe that his body, its brokenness, its breadness, its bloodness, that's the image. A guy crucified by Romans, bleeding out, on top of a hill outside of Jerusalem and because I have sought him and when I sought him I found forgiveness and life eternal and I believed in him because that's what the death was for he poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins that's where the belief sits you say Evan how is that in this passage Because you could get sidetracked by this and say, I really got to believe something weird like transubstantiation. And I include this last little bit in verse 60, the end of the chapter. Because this didn't make a big impression on his disciples. Let's just say it split the group. We had a church split in Jesus' disciples. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You are suggesting to people who don't normally think cannibalism you know, kind of a religious act, and you're suggesting to us that somehow it's going to be. It's got to be. It's a hard saying. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured, that the big crowd had murmured. He'd, he'd been followed by this crowd. He says, you guys are up to the wrong thing. Why don't you start being about the right thing? Well, what is the right thing? Well, let me make it difficult for you. Let me make it really difficult for you. Till now the 5,000 are probably just not even there. Followed him all the way over to Capernaum and they done. And his disciples, who stick it out because maybe he has an explanation, he said, this is not good, Jesus, what you're talking about. This is crazy talk. He said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you, does it bug you that I said this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Then he says the important part. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He said, Everybody who thought that somehow literally drinking blood and literally eating his body didn't pick up on what is called a metaphor. He said, the flesh is no avail. You, you could eat, eat messiahs all day long and it's not going to do anything for you. It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's not what goes into a man that makes him holy. The spirit of what he said. 
But then he says, but there are some of you that do not believe. This is his disciples. People that are following him, many of them are going, this is too hard, this is a bridge too far. There are some of you that do not believe, for Jesus knew that from the first, from the first, those who were that did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. So Jesus, it's not just Judas. Judas was going to betray him. But there was a bunch of other disciples that didn't believe in him. Had gotten to him, followed him, listened to his teaching, were wondering how it fit into their problem that they wanted him to resolve, but he wasn't there to fix that. He was there to fix eternal life for them, forgive sins for them. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Remember that back in, what verse was it? 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How does that drawing happen? Were you listening and learning from the Father? That's how the drawing happens. And this is why he told them that no one's going to come on unless it is granted him. What is keeping them from hearing and learning from the Father? Because that's the, that's the descriptor of the drawing. What is keeping you from hearing and learning? Well, perhaps you think that hungry people are the real problem. You know that, that kids go to school hungry? Well, yeah, because they forget to eat their breakfast or their parents don't feed them. Or not allowed to bring lunches anymore because it's inappropriate. Whatever the case... And you get all worked up about hungry kids or inequitable uh, salaries or, or the 1% or whatever it is that's bugging you about the world. This is why he told us, no one's not going to come to him unless you're being drawn by the Father. And you had better have the problem worked out that is God's problem. God's problem with you is the problem Jesus answers. Sin and the judgment. And Jesus Christ died to save sinners. He gave his body, his blood for sin, for the forgiveness of sins, so that if you believe in him, you would have eternal life. John 3.16, you guys know the passage. That's why God so loved the world. Do you have... Have you learned that much of God? If you're some, some natural theologian, you're trying to pick up what God wants out of this world. You know that ethics matter. The average thing you talk to any atheist about is, is why they're lost, because they really want to have ethics, but they can't have ethics. There has got to be a God. There has got to be a judgment. Nothing makes sense without it. That's the problem. That's why I should have been seeking Jesus. Not fixing the flat, getting me a job, feeding me lunch. Nice things, but not the thing. He is the bread that feeds something else. Get that clear in your mind what you're trying to reach. Because even in the church, if you can have Jesus, who is the Son of God, collecting a bunch of people around him and he could teach daily, and many of them did not believe. Many. Do you think the average church, whether it's All Souls or any other church, is not going to be filled with a degree of unbelief? People who are looking around going, what's he he's talking about me? He's talking about me. What about this, this forgiveness of sin stuff? Why are you talking about that? He says, this is why I told you. Then he says, and it says in 66, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Way to go, Jesus. We're on a roll. They're about to make you king. Had to run away. 5,000 people standing around. Just had to make them lunch one more time. Maybe three more times. I don't know. 
they would have made you emperor. And Jesus says, I'm here to answer the problem God has with the universe. God's problem with you is that you're a rotten person. You're just awful. A bastard. Because I get to say bastard. You are, you need to be saved. You're, you're damned eternally. Something has to be done to fix you. And my love for you, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You can rattle that off like uh, nobody's business. That's why he came. That's what he did. If you're seeking Christ, if you seek Christianity, if you seek the fellowship of the saints, what you have, the, the, the family you have, the membership you have, we talked about last week, the membership you have with one another is with those who share that. Those that are thankful, that stand in the forgiveness of God and stand in eternal life with Jesus Christ. Whatever their theology is after that, they stand in that forgiveness and they've come to Christ for that. You're rejoicing over the same thing. Many. It's a strange word. Many. I don't know how many disciples the Lord had at the time, but we know all the way down to inside the twelve we had people. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? This pushback from Jesus that says, here, be confused. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to find out what your problem is and have me, when you seek me, be the answer to that problem? So that when you find me, you'll believe in me. Because if you seek him and believe in him, not seek him and find a wonder worker who could make sandwiches and then believe that he'll make sandwiches. But you find him and find that you've found God. Not the answer to your problems or your need for utopia. But you found a God who you have offended that he will forgive you and Jesus Christ paid the price for it. Jesus, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? That's a, that's a great thought. I mean, Peter's great. When he's great, he's great. To whom shall we go? Where would you go? Who are you going to follow? The Dalai Lama? You know, Platitude Central? Ah, oh, golly. I have a shaved head. Oh, yes, you do. There's all sorts of deep teachers, some businessy sort of guys. What's that guy? Tony Robbins. Big smile. Where are you, you going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Is that what you're hearing? This church, wherever you go, the Bible studies you attend, are you hearing the life free from sin and the life eternal being laid out for you? That's what our Christ was there for. That was why he was the bread from heaven. If you ate the bread, you drank the blood. It meant that you sought him and you believed in him. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, I did not choose you. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. This is part of the image that we're supposed to see, part of the reality of the world we know, that even people that knew Jesus Christ, would it be great if Jesus would come back? Same problem. Because people are defining for themselves what the problem they're going to get out of religion, what answer they're going to get for what problem out of religion. This is the one that Christianity deals with. Do we say he has the words of eternal life? And are we about eternal life? As I was typing up the end there at the bottom of the left-hand side, have we built this religion to accommodate the wrong questions? Because you look at Christianity across the net world, and 
what are they all about? All these different things they're doing. What are they about? Are we accommodating all these bad questions that the, Jesus says, no, I want to drive them away because I want this to be about life eternal and the forgiveness of sins. And I type this line, we're good as long as we make Christ king. I've almost heard that out of Christians' lips. You know, as long as we make Christ king of everything we're doing, you know, the education system and the nation and all sorts of other things, as long as we make Christ king. It sounds really pious. You know, the Lord wants to kick you in the teeth, but it sounds really pious. It almost sounds like, well, that's correct, isn't it? We want to have Jesus be king, don't we? Remember verse 15. Take him by force to make him king. They wanted to make Jesus king. Make Christ king, Lord of their life. Let's make Lord, let's have him be over here in the, especially in the cafeteria. Lord, we want you here. Solving this problem, solving that problem with a Christian spin on it to make Jesus king. Um, let Jesus rule what Jesus came to rule. Your holiness and prepare you for the life hereafter. Watch out that what degree you start to think that sounds correct to you. Is it by accommodation of things that are not the question? Labor for the right thing. Labor for not the transient things but the eternal things. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful help us in our pursuit of your son believe him when we find him help us by training us letting us learn and hear from you about what the real issues are having heard and learned from you we will come to him and we will believe him Lord because he is the bread from heaven. Lord, our sins, forgive them. And our life together forever, we'd ask that you would give us great hope in it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.